This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 291st episode, we have a bunch of news, including a super long in-depth analysis of Tyrannosaurus, Tyrannosaurus Rex to be specific, and how it changed as it aged, as well as some Jurassic World Dominion and other dinosaur media news and lots of other good stuff. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Opisthocelacaudia, one of the most syllables I've seen in a dinosaur name. <laughs> Thank you, Thomas Holtz, for the pronunciation. Yeah, I think it might have been in the original paper, too, on that one. Ooh, even better. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. This week, those lucky patrons are Kyle, Brendan Kavanaugh, the Tolbert family, Remy Rodriguez, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Albertosaurus, Trev, Ayrton and Everett, Greg, Jared Copeland, Leah, Bill Jago, Argentrinosaurus, and JC. And JC just joined, so thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. We recently reached our 160 patron mark, which is amazing. So I'm glad we have you all with us. And if you want to join this growing community and watch dinosaur films with us, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, our first article is by Thomas Carr, published in Pure J, and it's the new study on how T-Rex grew up. We got a little preview of this paper either two years ago or three years ago at SVP. In it, he looked at 44 T-Rex individuals at different museums, but only ended up using 31 of them for most of the analyses, basically excluding 13 that were very incomplete, like less than 6% of the T-Rex individual in those cases. But there were a couple that were less complete that were included because they had the right pieces so they were useful for the analysis. He also excluded those that are in private collections or on loan to museums from private collections, which means that some really famous T-Rex specimens are not in the mix. So it doesn't include Scotty, which is the largest T-Rex that we've talked about a lot and also oldest potentially. It doesn't include either of the specimens in Europe Trix or Tristan, and it also doesn't include Stan, which is by far the most widely distributed T-Rex replica, and probably if you've been to a dinosaur museum and saw a T-Rex, it was Stan. So none of those are in this. <laughs> but on the bright side, it does include the proposed holotype of Nanotyrannus. Oh, he's adding to that debate. I think so, yeah. As well as Jane, which is sometimes considered Nanotyrannus as well. But he only uses the word nanotyrannus about three times in the paper. He just, Most of the time, it's just like, this is this specimen of T-Rex. So 
it's only adding to the debate in that it's another voice saying Nanotyrannosus T-Rex. Even with all those dinosaurs that are left out, it's still 103 pages of PDF, not including the supplemental materials. <laughs> so this one took quite a while to get through, but it's really fascinating. So he identified 21 growth stages and split those into five categories. And within that, you kind of have an S-curved growth pattern. This came from a Gregory Erickson et al. paper a few years back. Basically, if you look at human growth, for an example, we don't grow in an S-curve. We grow the most rapidly, the youngest we are, basically, and then we grow less and less as we get older. There's a little bit of a spurt in puberty, but for the most part, we're growing really rapidly when we're young. So we'll double in size from zero to one-year-old kind of thing. T-Rex, on the other hand, was growing really slowly for the first 10 or so years, like barely increasing in size. And then when it gets to our equivalent of puberty, it starts ramping up super rapidly. That's kind of like the middle of the S-curve, the exponential part. And then it levels off again as it gets older, just like we do. So it's a kind of different growth pattern than we're used to seeing. That might explain the parental care, though. It could, but... It Weirdly, you'd think if there was parental care, it would help them grow a lot faster when they're young. Mm. That's one of the potential advantages of parental care. So I don't know. They didn't speculate about that in this paper. Unfortunately, only six of the 31 specimens had their ages precisely measured with histology, basically counting those lags to see how many cold seasons or not eating a lot seasons it had been through. And so their placement along this S-curve in terms of where they were, because basically he took all 31 of them as little dots or circles with a number in them and put them on that curve for what part of development they're in. It's not actually based on their age. It's only based on the characteristics of their skull and the rest of their body to a lesser extent. So even though at first glance, when you're looking at the placement of these circles, the numbered circles, indicating the different individuals of Tyrannosaurus. And it looks like, oh, we know that one was this old and it weighed this much and it was at this development stage. We really only know the development stage. We don't know how much it weighed and what age it was in most cases because we don't have enough data to get that. It's just kind of assumed based on this S profile of growth, just placed it along that based on existing knowledge. So really what it is, is it's a chart of how these dinosaurs changed as they aged and then lumping some of the individuals together into groups like the juvenile group based on, say, like how long their skull was or if it had a different number of teeth or if there were other fenestra opening up in the skull and things like that. But the S-curve is really helpful to kind of give you a general idea about how big they were and how developed they were. So the five groups they ended up with were the juveniles, which were 0 to 14 years old, or roughly 14 years old, because it varies a little bit by individual when they started going through sexual maturity. And the main characteristic of the juveniles is that they have this long and shallow skull, also known as kind of the nanotyrannus looking skull. It's not tall, doesn't look like it could crush bone, doesn't have huge muscles on it and all that stuff. The weight estimates for this range from hatchling size, which is probably just like a kilo or two, up to a roughly 1.8 tons. That's based on some earlier research. That's a big range. It is. But I mean, that's so that's at zero years old. It's like one kilo. Yeah. And then by the time it's 14, it's about 1.8 tons. So that's how much it grew in those 14 years. But unfortunately, we only have a couple of individuals known from that category out of the 31. It's by far the worst known of the five categories. 
The next one is the subadults, which are from when they reached sexual maturity around 13 to 15 years old through 17 years old. And that's when they grow really rapidly. They also develop the deep skull that you see in later tyrannosaurs in this brief period. And also in that three to four year period, they essentially double in weight, going from that roughly 1.8 tons to about three tons in weight. Growth spurt. Yes, a huge growth spurt. So this is that probably the most rapid kind of exponential growth period. And then also, obviously, the skull is changing in major ways. So there's huge difference between a late subadult and an early subadult. That's when it changes its feeding strategies. Potentially, yeah. The next phase is the young adult phase that lasts from about 17 to 22 years old. And in that time, they continue to grow pretty rapidly, but near the end, they're kind of tapering off. So it's kind of the end of the growth spurt. And in that time, they go from about three tons up to about eight tons. So still quite a bit of growing. It's roughly doubling in size, but then it's taking more like six years to double in size at this point rather than just like three. The second to last phase, usually the last phase and everything else I've seen, is the adult phase, which is 22 to 28 years, roughly in age. And in that, they barely grow. They go from maybe eight tons to about nine tons if they're lucky, but there's quite a bit of individual variation. So some of them, by the time they hit 22, are basically already nine tons. It just <laughs> depends. There's not a lot of growing happening here, but their skull is still changing and there's still some other development happening. And the last phase they call senescent adult, which is basically a nice way of saying elderly. <laughs> <laughs> elderly at the age of 28? Yeah, well, it's 28 and up. So no matter how old it got. Oh, no, Garrett. Well, we're both in this category. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why you're singling me out. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I wasn't. I was saying for both of us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but fortunately, we're not tyrannosaurs. So this doesn't apply to us. Depends who you ask. At this point, the main thing is that they're not really growing anymore. And there isn't really any changes happening to the body. They're, for lack of a better word, fully grown, skeletally mature, all that stuff. Probably weighing about nine tons is pretty much the best guess we have to go with now. Some people say like 10 or 12 tons as well, but it just depends on your mass estimates. The only member in this category in their chart is Sue. It should probably also have included Scotty if it was included in the analysis. And then there's a couple others that might be in the mix as well, but they weren't in the 31 that ended up getting charted out. By far, most of the individuals that were included were young adult to adult. And those are the most exciting ones because they're the biggest, which might be why they get dug up so often. Like I hinted at, essentially around 13 to 15 is when Tyrannosaurus puberty hits and they start changing skull shape and all sorts of things like that. But one of the interesting elements of that change is that it looks like they got their adult jaws before the rest of their skull started to look like an adult. So also kind of an awkward transition for the Tyrannosaurus. It's not that different from humans. Yeah. Around the same age, awkward. Yeah. Our teeth tend to change before the rest of our head. Do you think T-Rex felt self-conscious as well? It should have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the paper puts a lot of emphasis on reaching the three-ton weight mark, which usually happened between 15 and 18 years old. And that's because at three tons, they're now bigger than any other Tyrannosaurus species up to that point, including Displetosaurus, Gorgosaurus, Albertosaurus, anything else you could name. So none of them could laugh at the T-Rex at this point? Yes. For being awkward? 
even though they were still less than half of their adult size. <laughs> well, there's a reason it's the apex predator. Yeah. In general, too, we see that the older tyrannosaurs have a higher bite force, but are less agile than the younger ones. They're which, just so giant. Yeah, it makes it a little hard. Although they do talk a little bit about how T-Rex might have been able to pirouette kind of thing by some special adaptations that it has compared to some other large carnivores. Overall, there was a ton of individual variation. One of the least mature adults, which is RSM 2523.8, is the largest and most massive <laughs> of the tyrannosaurs. So the weight and size of the animal alone definitely doesn't tell you if it's the oldest. Right. I'm older than Garrett, who is, <laughs> who is much taller. And more massive. <laughs> There's another dinosaur called TMM 41436-1, which is sometimes known as a different genus or sometimes a different species of Tyrannosauridae, but it's just listed as a large subadult in this case. So they're saying, yeah, it looks weird because it's so big, even though it's not really an adult yet. Kind of like you see the one kid in middle school who's way bigger than all the other kids. If you found them together in a group, you'd think, what's going on with this kid? Is he even a kid? <laughs> Is he some other kind of adult? <laughs> what's happening here? But then you look at the teeth. Or other, yeah, other factors, and you realize, oh, they're just a large juvenile. <laughs> the weirdest thing to me is they found that tooth count initially increases while they age and then later decreases. And I'm wondering if proponents of Nanotyrannus might use this as part of their argument because it seems strange that it would increase the number of teeth only to later decrease the number of teeth. But maybe if you split out Nanotyrannus, you could say, well, Nanotyrannus increases in number of teeth and Tyrannosaurus decreases or some sort of argument like that. And there's already been debates over Nanotyrannus and the teeth. So. Yeah, it's a, yeah, definitely a main part of the Nanotyrannus argument. Carr considers two of the 44 individuals to be unambiguous female specimens, hmm. which I thought was interesting. He included MOR 1125, which is known as B-Rex, and I believe that's the one that Schweitzer worked on and found the medullary bone in and compared it to female birds that use their medullary bone to store calcium that they later use to make eggs, and therefore considers it to be a female tyrannosaur, as well as BMRP 2006.6.4, which is at the Burpee Museum. And I think that one was included for its medullary bone as well. Makes sense. Yeah, and other than the medullary bone, they couldn't find any sexual dimorphism between the male and female skeletons. They're just too similar to easily tell apart in any way other than this medullary bone. He did say that the soft tissue was likely different. And remember, I think last week, maybe two weeks ago, we were talking about gharials and how they have a little bit of support structure for this big soft tissue gara on the end of the snout. But Carr specifically looked for something like that and said he couldn't find anything on the snout or elsewhere that looked like it was supporting a large soft tissue structure in a sexually dimorphic kind of way. So we're still kind of confused about why we have 44 individuals and we can only tell that two of them are female. <laughs> Maybe if we look a little closer, slice some more bones open, we can find some more females in the mix because it's really unlikely that 42 of them are male and two are female. Like I mentioned, he rejected Nanotyrannus being its own taxon and just considers it to be a really young Tyrannosaurus rex. 
One reported feature of Nanotyrannus is a dentary groove. Again, looking at the teeth of the Nanotyrannus. But Carr says that that dentary groove is in other young individuals as well as some adult T. rex individuals, but it's a lot smaller in the adults than in the young individuals. Another group that he rejects <laughs> the existence of and lumps in with Tyrannosaurus rex is the proposed Tyrannosaurus X, like just the letter X, as in we haven't named a species for it or a genus. It was proposed by Larson a few years ago, and it's based on three individuals, but again, arguing that individual variation is enough to cover the differences of these Tyrannosaurus X, in air quotes, dinosaurs. One of the cool things about the paper is he put down specific lag guesses for most of the individuals. So basically, he's encouraging someone to slice into these bones and see if his estimates at the ages along this S-curve match up. And I'm all for it because I think it's the best way that we can test this growth theory and see if all these elements around the skull and the body that seem to be showing a, a consistent growth pattern, if it does line up with their ages. Because if it does, then that's really excellent evidence that they were growing. And these are all real features of Tyrannosaurus growing and going through these different stages. Plus histology slides look cool. They do. But unfortunately, then you have a hole in your fossil or a chunk missing out of it. Trade-offs. Yeah. Next up, we've got an update on the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. It's a paper by G.S. Collins and others published in Nature Communications. Another open access one, just like the previous paper. Nice. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So the study is looking at that crater in Mexico where we assume the dinosaurs were wiped out from. We've got a lot of good evidence for it. Chicxulub, yeah. But it's not based on the core samples that were drilled into the peak ring a couple of years back. In this case, they're mostly looking at gravity measurements from the area. And the data was actually collected in the 1990s, I think from satellites detecting minor differences in gravity. That's usually how they gather this information. But it was from papers from the 90s. And a lot of times you can't get those online, so I'm not entirely certain. But in any event, they have this nice pretty color map of the Chicxulub impact site. And you can clearly see the peak ring because it's this dark area that shows that it's a different density than the rock around it because basically gravity measurements from a satellite tell you about the differences in density of the rock as you go over it or of whatever material you're going over. To figure out some details of the impact, they looked at three different points. They have the center of the crater, the center of the peak ring, and the center of the mantle uplift. So the center of the crater is something you can see with any crater. It's just if you take the rim of the crater and you draw a circle <laughs> to simulate the rim of the crater, it would be the dot right in the middle where you put like the compass to draw the ring of the crater. In this case, with the Chicxulub impact, it was so big that there was a peak ring inside the rim of the crater. Mm. So really huge impacts. They obviously liquefy the rock and it kind of sloshes around just like if a drop of rain hits a pond and it makes those ripples, it's the same kind of ripples can be caused by a massive <laughs> asteroid hitting the earth and liquefying rock and sloshing it around. And if it's big enough, it'll leave a permanent ripple 
which is the peak ring inside the rim of the crater because it solidifies back down and now we have this permanent ripple kind of it's been there for 66 million years now <laughs> and then the mantle uplift center is a different thing it's basically from the earth rebounding back up after the impact and when the mantle came up which from like 30 40 kilometers under the surface of the earth way deep down because this crater was so deep it pulls up a little bit of the mantle to fill in the spot which was left by that crater so comparing these three points they're all different points and they line up pointing southwest they ran a bunch of computer simulations to see what resulted in this combination and these orientations these different center points and they used 20 kilometers a second and 12 kilometers a second as the speeds of the asteroids 20 kilometers a second is 45,000 miles an hour or 58 times the speed of sound <laughs> and apparently that's the average speed of asteroid impacts wow they come very very fast at the earth and then i think they use 12 kilometers of a second just as like a, an alternate to see how that affected things they found that based on this speed the asteroid came from the northeast towards the yucatan peninsula so kind of from the direction of like Louisiana or Florida or something in the U.S., but obviously up in space. And it threw material out in all directions, but a little bit more towards the southwest. And you can kind of see that because the mantle center point is a little bit to the northeast. And it kind of shows that as that material was getting shoved to the southwest, the mantle was pulled up behind it in the northeast to kind of fill in the gap and that void that was left by shoving the northeast material to the southwest the mantle had to fill in back from the northeast and that's why they think that center point is farther in that direction with their simulations they could also test different angles of the asteroid impact and eventually they settled on it probably hit at about 45 to 60 degrees from horizontal and they called 30 to 60 degrees a quote worst case scenario for the high speed ejection of carbon dioxide and sulfur by the Chicxulub impact, end quote. And that's based on the core samples that were taken a while ago. Based on those core samples, they could tell that it's two to three times worse than a vertical impact or like a 90 degree to horizontal impact. And it's about 10 times worse than a shallow angle. I heard somebody describe it as like, if it hit at a really shallow angle, it wouldn't have shot the sulfur and stuff up into the upper atmosphere as much because it just wouldn't have hit with enough angle on it to eject it as much. And if it hit vertical, similar sort of story. So this was just the worst case scenario of ejecting as much material into the upper atmosphere. A lot of things happening at once that led to the extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs. Yes. And I guess... Maybe there were other events that were similar to this in the Mesozoic, but they didn't have that combination of everything going wrong at once. And so we just never found out about it because why would you? Everything stayed the same. <laughs> in other news, you got a quick update on the dueling dinosaurs and the final update. It's the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit recently found that the dueling dinosaur fossils do belong to the Murrays, the couple who owns the surface estate and that the owners of the mineral rights do not have a claim to them. And this is according to jurists. This comes after the ruling from the Montana Supreme Court that fossils are not considered to be minerals. The Murrays already have an agreement to sell the dueling dinosaurs for a confidential amount, but they've been appraised between 7 and $9 million. So I guess they won the final appeal of that. They did. That was quite the saga. 
I guess the, the final page will be who it gets sold to. Hopefully it's a museum, but it seems unlikely. Eh, you never know. Well, some people know. We don't know. <laughs> we'll find out. In Chongqing, China, a group of, quote, chicken claw prints that were found in the wall of an air raid shelter last March have been found to be dinosaur tracks, specifically a theropod from the Jurassic about 190 million years ago. They're Chientopus tracks, which is an ichnogenus, so it's known from its footprint trace fossils. There are 46 footprints, and based on the lengths of the strides, the theropods were medium and large in size. Possibly could be Cynosaurus. And that's a theropod that lived in the area around that time. In Japan, researchers said they found the world's smallest dinosaur egg fossil at 4.5 centimeters by 2 centimeters. And the fossil is estimated to weigh 10 grams. It dates back to 100 million years ago. It was found in Hyogo Prefecture, and it's probably a small theropod egg. That is really small. It's like an inch by two inches, roughly. Maybe about the size of a chicken egg-ish? I think chicken eggs are larger. They tend to weigh a lot more. Because this egg is estimated to be about 10 grams, and the chicken eggs, small ones, are 35 grams. Gotcha. That would make a really small dinosaur then. Mm-hmm. A cute one, I'm sure. In Kiomega, South Africa, hopefully I pronounced that okay, uh, there's an important site for Triassic dinosaur fossils. The Natural History Museum in London shared about the region, and it borders Lesotho, where villagers have been finding massive bones for years, and then they turned out to be late Triassic dinosaurs. So a team of about 20 international paleontologists are excavating the site. They've been doing it since 2018. And they learned about the site after a local person found large fossil bones and then showed them to a school teacher and village elder who knew about dinosaurs and had been researching dinosaurs since 1985. That's convenient. Mm -hmm. The site is part of the Lower Elliott Formation, and they used to have large river systems, which is why there's so many fossils. So far, dinosaurs found there include sauropodomorphs and then a lot of other animals, including distant relatives of crocodiles and early mammals. The paleontology team teaches about the fossil sites to the locals, and they're hoping to encourage students to study fossils. They've also applied to have the site classified as a World Heritage Site. Nice. In dinosaur media, good news if you're a fan of the TV show Dinosaurs, if you have Disney Plus too, because that show is probably coming to Disney Plus sometime in the fall. And that's based on something that Ryan Reynolds said on his game show, Don't. I didn't watch it, so I don't know exactly what he said, but there were a lot of articles about it. It's a good show. I mean, dinosaurs is, I don't know about Don't. Dinosaur Batman's now out in the first issue of Dark Knight's Death Metal. And we've talked about Dinosaur Batman before, but now the first issue's out. So Batman in this series is known as B-Rex and is a T-Rex. And I'm going to give spoilers, so don't listen for a second if you want to read the issue. B-Rex is Bruce Wayne's consciousness that has been uploaded to a mechanical T-Rex that was found in the Batcave. Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny because B-Rex is a real animal. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's one of the specimens we know to be female. Oh, yeah. So that's the T-Rex specimen that's nicknamed B-Rex, M-O-R-1125, also known as Bob-Rex. But B-Rex is also the official name of the shoebill, the freaky huge bird that's reportedly up to 15 pounds and five feet tall. Oh, wow. So it almost looks Sabrina in the eye. Oh. Or maybe it will. I think it might look you in the eye, actually, because its eyes are right at the top of its head. That sounds terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and it's called, it's officially B-Rex because the genus name is Baleenoseps, 
So mm. if you abbreviate it, it's B-Rex. Interesting. But this is not one of those. It's make-believe. This is a comic. And last in the news, word's gone out that filming for Jurassic World Dominion is starting up again on July 6th at Pinewood Studios in the UK. So they filmed four weeks of the 20-week shoot already, and the studio's spending $5 million, I think, not pounds, or maybe it was 5 million pounds, on protocols to keep everyone safe during COVID-19. So this will include a lot of testing. Everyone will be tested before returning to set and then tested throughout filming. There's also going to be a private medical facility for the production, COVID training, on-site doctors, nurses, and isolation booths, a lot of hand sanitizer stations, a lot of safety signs, and then everyone has to wear masks except for the actors while they're performing. Wow. Yeah. And anyone with symptoms will be isolated and sent home. People will get their temperatures taken every day, and there's going to be staggered schedules and zones for everyone as well as contact tracing. So for the cast and crew who are flying back to the UK, they're going to spend two weeks before they start filming in quarantine. According to Deadline, the film won't be too impacted. There weren't many large crowd scenes left, for example. And the release date is still currently set for June 11, 2021. Some of the scenes were originally considered for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom that are now going to be in Jurassic World Dominion. And Colin Trevorrow, according to GameSpot, said that the movie is going to focus on Owen and Claire taking care of Maisie. Oh, no. It, it could still be good. And then in this world, quote, a dinosaur might run out in front of your car on a foggy back road or invade your campground looking for food. A world where dinosaur interaction is unlikely but possible the same way we watch out for bears or sharks. And I think we've said that quote before. But that was to reiterate that it's not going to be all about battling dinosaurs out in the world. There going to be dinosaurs all over the place. That sounds pretty cool. Except for the taking care of Maisie part. Hopefully that's not like... A major factor in the plot. Sounds like it will be, though. Could be some interesting things. I'm a little worried now. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. We'll still enjoy the dinosaurs. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Apisthocelicadia, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Discord and Patreon. So thanks. It was a sauropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Mongolia in the Gobi Desert. And it's estimated to be about 37 to 43 feet or 11.4 to 13 meters long. There's a lot of different weight estimates, though, so it ranges from 8.4 tons to 25.4 tons. Apisthocelicadia had a small head, and it was quadrupedal. It had a medium-length neck that was about 16 feet or 5 meters long. Seems pretty long if its whole body was only about 40 feet. That's true. Gregory Paul in 2019 found that there were 10 dorsals, which is the number found in titanosaurs. The number of back vertebrae. Mm-hmm. It also had a long tail and a flexible back and a strong pelvic region. And Apisthocelicadia had bony projections on the top of its spine, like Diplodocus. Proportionally, its limbs were short, and its forelimbs were about two-thirds the length of the hind limbs, which were fairly flexible. And the foot claws were all about the same size. It may have used its tail like a third leg when it reared up, which meant that it had a flexible tail. The thick pelvis may show that it was strong enough to rear up. Originally, Apisthocelicadia was thought to have a straight back, but in 2007, Daniela Schwartz and others found the back may have dipped towards the rear and that the shoulder blade inclined at a steeper angle. The type species is Apisthocelicadia skarzynskii. The genus name means posterior cavity tail and refers to the opisthocelian structure of the anterior caudals, which means the vertebrae at the anterior, which is facing forward, of the tail. Closer to the head, in other words. Yes. They were concave on their posterior, which is facing rearward, so the posterior sides, and it was convex on their anterior side, so it formed ball and socket joints. And because of this, it may have been able to rear on its hind legs. The species name is in honor of Wojciech Skarzynski, who prepared the type specimen. A nearly complete skeleton was found, no head or neck, in a 1965 joint Polish-Mongolian expedition. Apisthocelicadia, the holotype, was an adult, and it was found on its back, with most vertebrae still connected, though the left limb and rib bones were found to the right of the body, and the right limb and rib bones were found on the left side of the body. There were tooth marks on the skeleton, which probably means that large carnivores ate the carcass and may have removed the missing parts, like the head and the neck. There were bite marks found in the pelvis and right femur. Because of the completeness of the skeleton, it probably died close to where it was found, and it's possible there was a flood that moved the body and then covered it in sediment. A juvenile part of a shoulder was also found, and part of a tail and some claws have also been referred to Apistocelicadia. It was described by Maria Magdalena Borsuk Bialnonica in 1977, and it was found in the Nemet Formation. It was hard to move the fossils. There were stone blocks that had to be moved about 1,900 feet or 580 meters on metal sledges made of petrol drums and then put onto trucks. It's quite elaborate. Yeah. But the team packed the skeleton into 35 crates, and that weighed 12 tons. 
The holotype was part of the collection at the Institute of Paleobiology in Warsaw and then later went back to Mongolia, and now it's at the Institute of Geology of the Mongolian Academy of Sciences in Ulaanbaatar. There was another sauropod found in the Nemet formation, Nemetosaurus, and that's known from one skull. Apistocelicadia, the skull, is not known, so some scientists think Apistocelicadia and Nemetosaurus are synonymous, and if they're synonymous, then the name would go to Nemetosaurus because it was named first in 1971. Yeah, it's tricky when one of them you know most of it except for the head, and the other one you only know the head. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not a great place to be in. Right, because you can't properly compare anything. So Nemetosaurus was found in the same expeditions as Apistocelicadia, but it was thought to be from different clades. Uh, Nemetosaurus was originally classified as Dicreosaurinae. Apistocelicadia was Camarasauridae. Now both dinosaurs are thought to be Titanosaurs, and Apistocelicadia is now classified as Saltosauridae. If they both end up in Saltosauridae, then that could be trouble for getting synonymized. Because it'd be more likely? Yeah. I think it might be a case of need more fossils. Although, Phil Curry and others in 2018 found some postcranial fossils in the quarry where Nemetosaurus was found, and that may have belonged to the holotype. And that could help support the idea that Nemetosaurus and Apistocelicadia were synonymous. Other scientists think femora found are Nemetosaurus and that the femora is different from Apistocelicadia, which would make them two distinct dinosaurs. Sauropod footprints have been found in the Nemet formation with skin impressions, and they're probably either Apistocelicadia or Nemectosaurus. A skin impression of the footprint shows non-overlapping scales, and there's also claw impressions. The footprints found were very large, so they were probably made by a dinosaur larger than the type specimen of Apistocelicadia. Other dinosaurs that lived at the same time and place as Opithocelicadia include Tyrannosaur, Tarbosaurus, Ornithomimosaur, Dinochirus, Sauropod Nemetosaurus, of course, Troodontid, Borogovia, and Ankylosaur, Tarkia. And other animals that lived at the same time and place included fish, turtles, crocodiles, and birds. And our fun fact of the day is that there are lots of dinosaurs in movies that show sauropods avoiding stepping on small theropods and babies. Oh, that's nice. But I wanted to see if this was actually something they were likely doing. So <laughs> I see. could sauropods really see the dinosaurs between their feet and avoid stepping on them? So the first part of this is eyesight and whether or not they actually have good enough eyesight to see things like dinosaurs between their feet. There is shockingly little research into sauropod eyesight. It seems like everybody likes to focus on carnivore and omnivore eyesight because it's assumed that it's important for their hunting abilities and all that kind of stuff. And since sauropods are herbivores, people just don't talk about them as much. It also could be because sauropod skulls are a little bit less common than some other animal skulls. But from the sauropod skulls we have, we know that they do have pretty big eyes, and big eyes usually mean better sight. So the fact that they have pretty big eyes means that they probably used their eyes quite a bit. And their eyes are a lot bigger than ours, but relative to their body, they aren't huge. So they might have also been using other senses like hearing and things like that a lot and not just relying on their eyes. The other factor to look at is whether or not they could actually see their feet while they were walking. So in Walking with Dinosaurs, and I think the Disney movie Dinosaur, they briefly do like a sauropod eye view of their own feet 
walking and then a bunch of little things scurrying around their feet and avoiding stepping on them. But I know for a fact that camera angle is completely wrong because their head is not looking straight down at their feet like we're used to doing when we look down at our feet because their head is out 20 feet or so in front of their feet. So in order to look at their feet and make sure they're not stepping on something, they have to look backwards, the opposite direction of where they're walking, not just down. Fortunately for me, the Sauropod Dinosaurs book by Mark Hallett and Matt Wadel includes a Nigerosaurus drawing depicted with its vision. And it's pretty crazy because its eyes are really high up on its head. So it actually has 360 degree vision. Wow. And potentially it had binocular vision both in the front and in the back because it's like the eyes can see a little bit more than 180 degrees and therefore they overlap both in the front and the back <laughs> so they could maybe get some really good depth perception looking backwards as well. That makes sense being herbivorous and technically prey. Yeah, I was thinking too, like maybe if it's using its tail as a weapon, then being able to see exactly where something is distance-wise relative to its tail could be really helpful. But looking at its feet, I think would be really difficult with this because the eyes are on top of the head. So if it's trying to look at its feet, the neck is going to be in the way. It can't really see down towards its feet unless it turns its head to the side so that now it's just looking with one eye back towards its body and now the other eye is pointed forward, basically. But if it does that, that means that it's going to lose its binocular vision. And if it's trying to walk forward at the same time, it's not going to have binocular vision for walking forward. It's only going to have one eye pointed forward and one eye looking backwards. And that also seems really awkward because I don't know if they had the brain power to simultaneously pay attention to the walking forward coming into one eyeball and the feet in the other eyeball. I guess it's possible, but it's a weird move. I to think do I for see sure. where you're going with this. <laughs> So another side to this could be they definitely could have seen if they were about to step on something if they wanted to look, but would they actually care? Because these little tiny animals are so much quicker and better at avoiding getting stepped on than the sauropods could be at avoiding them. I'm seeing it like one of those crazy intersections you see with all sorts of vehicles and pedestrians and everything. And people just kind of stay out of each other's way. And when there's a bus coming, the bus doesn't look out for the pedestrian watching, walking across the street. The pedestrian watches out for the bus. You know, you have to yield to the enormous thing coming your way. So that's my best guess. I doubt they were stepping on the babies and the little theropods all the time, but I don't think it was because the sauropods were looking out for them. It's probably just because it was easy enough to avoid getting stepped on. I also think like based on the way us humans walk, we just look forward and you kind of remember what's on the ground. You don't have to consciously think about it so much, but you don't have to stare at your feet while you're walking. Nothing really stares at their feet while they're walking, except for Sabrina's making a face. Maybe she does. <laughs> yeah, I've been trying not to lately, but it's a habit. Maybe a better analogy is riding a bike. You can't stare at the wheel in front of you while you're bike riding. You have to look ahead where you're going and you'll kind of remember what's coming up as you get towards it. So that's probably what sauropods were doing, I would assume. And then they can use their binocular vision to focus on where they're going and look out for running into stuff. And the little dinosaurs under their feet, they can figure it out. They'll be fine. And the turtles. Well, they might not be fine. I'm they're, sure most of them They're will. not quick enough. <laughs> Sounds like they should have gotten out of the way. They should have <laughs> planned for it. <laughs> that's what I'm hearing. Blaming the victim. Oh, no. Well, now you've painted me into a quarter. Thanks. 
<laughs> let's just end with, we don't know. We don't. So let's give the sauropods the benefit of the doubt. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure this will continue. Anyway, <laughs> that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and join our community, patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.